0: Hello and welcome everybody to the GodCast. Uh, this has actually been the first episode in quite a while, uh, but uh, I'm glad to be getting back into it. I was a little bit busy and this episode will actually only be me. Uh, I'm just doing a kind of a quick and I think very interesting research episode um, regarding uh, the church fathers, specifically the apostolic fathers of the uh, first and second centuries. Um, but we should have some more interviews coming up with all four of us back in the studio uh, so stay tuned for those planned future episodes. That being said, let's get started uh, with some very interesting uh, with a very interesting synopsis of the Apostolic Fathers. So uh, the term apostolic fathers uh, basically just denotes um, the earliest church fathers. Now uh, the patristic age, so to speak, uh, runs from uh, the uh, first century with uh, Clement of Rome, you could you could put him sort of as the as the first apostolic father, given that he uh, was writing in uh, the year uh, around the year ninety eight. But just a kind of general uh, consensus uh, would be that the Patristic age goes from about a hundred uh, CE or AD, whichever dating system you prefer, to maybe we could say the seventh ec- Ecumenical Council. Uh, in seven eighty-seven, being the Second Council of Nicaea. Uh, so, with that kind of quick uh, definition out of the way, the Apostolic Fathers, or of 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 the, what the Patristics are, the Apostolic Fathers are again those earliest uh, fathers, uh, many of whom, uh, actually, I think I think all of whom were born in the first century. So, what precisely did the Apostolic Fathers? Have to say. What's so cool about this is we can actually go back and learn what the earliest Christians were thinking, and that has helped some kind of interpret uh, the Bible or uh, just sort of uh, get a grip on uh, which maybe denomination they should join. Because when reading the Apostolic Fathers, that's led some people in the, the Church Fathers in general, uh, probably more so people outside that, just slightly outside of the Apostolic Fathers' age. But it's when by reading the patristic, some people have joined like. Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, so pretty interesting, pretty interesting stuff. So we'll start with the first uh, apostolic father quotation here. This is from Ignatius of Antioch, and this is his uh, epistle. It's called Ignatius to Polycarp, and it was written between ninety eight uh, to one hundred seventeen CE or AD, whichever Indian system you prefer. Again, and the reason I'm starting with this church father is because by is because it can help kind of. Uh, Tease out what I think is the first very interesting find by reading the apostolic fathers. So let's let's go read this. Uh, "Quote: Await Him that is above every season, the eternal, the invisible, who became visible for our sake, the impalpable, the impassible, who suffered for our sake, who who endured and always for our sake. I bid you farewell, always in our God Jesus Christ, in whom abide ye in the unity and supervision of God." End quote. So what's interesting about this verse here, or this not verse but Kind of excerpt uh, from his from Ignatius' letter to Polycarp is not only that it was written during Ignatius' uh, uh, arrest and his, his when he was awaiting his execution by the Roman emperor uh, during the the numerous Christian persecutions that occurred in uh, in, in antiquity, but. What's interesting is is here here first Jesus is God. Some people will claim that Jesus really only became God in three twenty five at the first Council of Nicaea, but that's actually incorrect because uh, we see in this text here, which was written again about ninety eight to one hundred seventeen, uh, within that time frame, we see that Ignatius of Antioch refers to Jesus as God. So another in- interesting note on Ignatius of Antioch who I guess will be the first church father we're kind of diving into is that Ignatius of Antioch uh, was actually the first individual to coin the term Christian uh, he was throughout his life he had kind of a kind of a sort of a feud with the Jewish Christians um, he actually went as far as to say that the people who converted to Christianity had had um, Gentiles who converted to Christianity had sort of a um, were, were, were like better than Jewish converts to Christianity. So he was uh, a little bit um, you can you can kind of read that however you will. But um, he also visited the city of. Uh, Philadelphia where uh, and what, what's so important about not Philadelphia in the United States obviously but Philadelphia in the province of Asia Minor but why am I mentioning this well it's, it's interesting that he that he visited Philadelphia and he said that he expected Philadelphia he expected him he expected himself to be faced with opposition there because what we have to understand about the earliest Christians uh, whether they're Gentile converts or Jewish converts is that the Jewish Christians wanted, wanted to preserve Jewish customs uh such as circumcision, in order to get into the, uh, the 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 new covenant, which is something that Paul anathematizes in uh, the Epistle to the Galatians. But what we'll see is we'll see that the Gentile converts to Christianity wanted to have bishops lead the church because bishops were successors to apostles, whereas Jewish converts or or ju- converts from Judaism to uh, to Christianity, to Jewish Christianity, wanted the church to be led by prophets, an, an ongoing chain of prophecy. The four daughters of Philip lived in the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor, and Philadelphia being one of the seven churches to whom John of Patmos writes his letter. If you really do a deep dive into the book of Revelation, you can realize that in the book of Revelation we see all these um, kind of, I mean, the more you study it, the more overt it becomes... Um, uh, hints that it that John is a Jewish Christian he really wants Christianity to remain in, in a uh, much more Jewish form uh, whereas Ignatius of Antioch could be kind of directly opposed to that so essentially the dispute came came down to should we have should the church be led by prophets and should we continue to uh, adopt Jewish customs and uh, and also perhaps not even marry uh, gentile converts if we if we're jewish um, or should uh, the Ch- and also not eat the meat of pe- not eat meat sacrificed to pagan idols something that paul kind of got around by claiming that the pagan idols didn't even exist whereas john of patmos would have likely been in the school that they did exist and they were actually demons or on the gentile hand Should we be in the camp that says, uh, you know what, we're going to go with what Paul says, you're saved apart from the works of the law, and we're just not really going to worry about whether or not we're carrying on any Jewish customs. In fact, we're probably going to be against that if that gets in line with this, uh, if 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 that contradicts, again, apart from the works of the law, that whole idea. So let's move on to a second interesting find in the Apostolic Fathers which would be the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, This is obviously a controversial uh, subject. If you are a Protestant, you might uh, disagree with that and argue that that James is, in fact, the biological brother of Jesus. Now, let's see what Papias of Hierapolis, who was a bishop who lived from 60 to 130 uh, CE or AD, had to say about this. Quote, Mary, the mother of the Lord, Mary, the wife of Cleophas or Aphaeus, who was the mother of James, the bishop and apostle, and of Simon and Thaddeus, and of one Joseph, Mary Salome, wife of Zebedee, mother of John, the evangelist, and James, Mary Magdalene. These four are found in the gospel. James and Judas and Joseph were sons of an aunt of the Lord's. James also and John were sons of another aunt of the Lord's. Mary, the mother of James, and the less, and Joseph, wife of Ephaeus, was the sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord, whom John names of Cleophas, either from her father or from the family of the clan or for some other reason. But uh, Mary Salome is called Salome, Either from her husband or her village. Some affirm that she is the same as Mary of Cleophas because she has two husbands. End quote. So, what you see here is you see Papias kind of dances around these, these all these people named Mary. I would suspect to, uh, I would suspect to maintain or argue for at least, perhaps even originate, um, the, the this idea that Mary is you know, this perpetual, this idea of perpetual virginity. Um, So that's very interesting. Another interesting note about uh, Papias is that his works are only found in fragments. It's the fragments of Papias. And in one of his uh, fragments, this is his third fragment, which we don't have any context to go along with this because this is literally the entirety of the third fragment, he claims something very strange about Judas Iscariot. I'll uh, I'll go, go over this now. Quote, Judas walked about in this world a sad example of impiety for his body having swollen to such an extent that he could not pass where a chariot could easily pass. He was crushed by the chariot so that his bowels gushed out. End quote. So what's very odd about this is we have, Papias claims that Judas Iscariot you know swelled to this, Im- this immense size, uh. Where, where where a chariot could not easily pass, and he was crushed by this chariot, and his bowels gushed out. So I don't. It's very hard to make anything of it. It sounds like he's claiming that Judas Iscariot became very fat, and then a chariot just ran over him. It's it's very odd, but th- and, and that that's sort of a problem because and on to Papius's or it could it's a potential problem to Papius's uh, historical credibility, and we'll get into um, some of his historical claims later, because obviously Mary's perpetual virginity is is a historical claim, but it's also a, a theological claim. But we'll get into um, one of his historical claims later, so that's kind of a problem for, for that, or a potential problem, by claiming that Judas Iscariot was ran over by a chariot and became very swelled up. But another issue is that if we read in the first um, fragment of Papias. Papius prefers uh, oral tradition uh, po- uh, instead of written tradition, which is kind of uh, which is kind of uh, against the grain of what we would expect today. Um, I can read this here. It says, uh, "Quote, but I shall not be unwilling to put down along with." My, my interpretations, whatsoever instructions I received with care any time from the elders, any, and stored up with care in my memory, assuring you at the same time of their truth. For I did not, like the multitude, take pleasure in those who spoke much, but in those who taught the truth, nor in those who related strange commandments, but in those who rehearsed the commandments given by the, the Lord to faith and proceeding from truth itself. If then any one who had attended on the elders came, I asked minutely after the sayings what Andrew or Peter said or what was said by Philip or by Thomas or by James or by John or by Matthew or by any of the the Lord's disciples, which uh, things uh, Aristion and the Presbyter John, the disciples of the Lord, say, for I imagined that what was to be got from books was not so profitable to me as what came from the living and abiding voice, end quote. So Papius is not a huge fan of written tradition, but he likes oral tradition a lot, especially if you can trace it back to Jesus. Okay, now let's talk about the role of presbyters and celibacy in the early church. Let's read this this interesting quotation, uh, this excerpt from Polycarp and Smyrna, who I mentioned earlier when Ignatius of Antioch was writing to him. But but Polycarp was also a martyr, and there's an entire martyrology written about him, which is very fascinating and very in-depth and I'll, I'll uh, link it in the description of this podcast so you can look at it for yourself but both Polycarp and Ignatius wound up as martyrs uh, sadly uh, during by by means of persecution uh, of Christians by the, by the Roman emperors so let me but let me in, but at any at any rate let me read this quotation because I find it very fascinating quote I am deeply grieved therefore brethren for him Valens and his wife to whom may the Lord grant true repentance end quote so what we have is so here. Polycarp tells Valen a presbyter to repent, but also mentions that mentions that Valen's wife should repent. This indicates that the presbyters or elders of the early church were allowed to marry. And we can also read this from Timothy, First uh, Timothy, chapters uh, three, chapter three, verses one through five. Now this is an epistle attributed to Paul. Uh, you can say it was written by Paul. You can say it was not written by Paul. Or written in the school of Paul, whichever one you like. But this is a, um, this is a certainly an early Christian text, be it from the first century or not. Quote, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, nor violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. End quote. Uh, so obviously, uh, there's the there's this thing that says faithful to his wife. I'm quoting that directly. Faithful to his wife, and it says, talks about. He must be able to manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. So obviously in the early church it seems quite clear that presbyters were married. Um, so now let's talk about the first apology or defense ever written. Uh, so the idea of Christian apologetics is, is nothing new. Uh, in today's day and age there's Christian apologists who will attempt to lay out rational arguments, arguing for Christianity, or there are presuppositional apologists who believe that, who take the philosophical position that God Himself is, that that, that Jesus Himself is truth. So what we actually need to do, and the Bible is the only objective, uh, um, the Bible is is the only objective form of truth. So what we need to do is we actually need to have. All these things we only have Christianity as a presupposition in order to make sense of the world, and we can kind of see. in when, when presuppositional apologists, presuppositionalists, will debate their opponents, they will essentially they'll essentially argue that whoever borrows from the other's worldview um, has lost the debate. So it's a, it's a very complicated. Uh, kind of system, but it's very interesting. Uh, but he, but here it is, the first apology ever written by Aristides the philosopher. Uh, the term apology uh, in the Greek apologia does not mean that they're apologized. it means that it's a defense. They're defending their their faith. Um, Aristides the philosopher was a convert um, to Christianity. He was formerly a, a pagan. He was a philosopher of, uh, of Athena. He was a devotee of Athena, but he converted to Christianity. And he wrote this apology for the Emperor Hadrian when he visited the city of Athens uh, in the year 125, or at least around the year 125. Quote, I say then that God is not born, not not made, an ever-abiding nature without beginning and without end, immortal, perfect, and incomprehensible. Now when I say that he is perfect, this means that there is not in him any defect, and he is not in need of anything, but all things are in need of him. And when I say this, he is, quote, without beginning, end quote. This means that everything which has beginning has also an end, and that which has an end may be brought to an end. He has no name, for everything which has a name is kindred to things created, end quote. So what's interesting about this is if um, is you can kind of see this use of Hellenistic philosophy in here. Um, it, it sounds like a prefiguration of Thomism, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, um, but it, it kind of shows that sort of overlap of, of Hellenistic philosophy and Christianity, something that Justin Martyr, uh, not an apostolic father, and Aristides isn't, isn't considered an apostolic father, but he's just still pretty early, but uh, Justin Martyr would use this idea of um, of synthesizing. Hellenistic or synthesizing philosophy and this is something that that, that Athanasius would do and Origen would do and, and all the all the uh famous uh, apologists and theologians would do uh, later on when writing defenses of their worldviews uh be that a theological uh be that theological apologetics uh, arguing that the one worldview is better one religious worldview is better than the other or that being kind of a uh, or that being uh, in the case of Justin Martyr, in which he argues to the emperor and his son that Christians should be treated well because they're actually good for society. All right, let's talk about uh, martyrdom. This is very interesting because some people will claim that when, argue, when arguing with, with Christians, there's this idea of like, well, you know, where exactly does it say in the Bible that, that the apostles died for their faith? I mean, there, there is certainly, you have uh, Stephen uh, is, 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 is killed in the Acts of the Apostles, and you have... Um, you have uh, J- um, uh, you have uh, Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles, and you have James, son of Zebedee, uh, who are martyred. But you could, but actually, I think what what compounds the case and makes it even more convincing is looking externally, outside of the Bible, uh, because that actually can make the case even stronger. Uh, you have um, you you have uh, uh, in this very fascinating very ancient letter from Clement of El, uh, from it's called the first epistle of Clement possibly written in around 98 AD or CE again which ever dating system you prefer we have uh this very interesting um account of how Paul and Peter are killed uh i mean it's interesting in the sense that it provides a i would argue um like, like objective, because obviously, if we in the Acts of the of the Apostles, uh, the author of their the author of the book is trying to um, convince you that Christianity is is has this you know f- fascinating missionary tradition and it has a very miraculous um, uh, beginning with all these miracles being performed by the apostles and so forth. But in this case, it's simply kind of an objective news report um, of. Of the, act of the martyrdom of Peter and, and, and Paul, even if it is from a Christian source that might have some um, theological motivations. But still, I think this is a, is a very fascinating snapshot in the history. So let's just go ahead, without any further ado, and read this. Quote, But not to dwell upon ancient examples, let's come to the most recent spiritual heroes. Let's take the, the noble examples furnished in our own generation. Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the Church— have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before our our eyes the illustrious apostles. Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two but numerous labors, and when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance, after being seven times thrown into captivity compelled to flee, and stoned. After preaching both in the East and West, he gained the illustrious the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world, and then come to the extreme limit of the West, and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Thus was he removed from the world, and went into the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. End quote. And that again is from the first epistle of Clement. So what's very interesting here is that we have this idea of martyrdom that we see uh, external to the Bible, and it's incredibly early in tradition. We don't—we're not potentially risking uh, risking this idea. We're not potentially risking that something could be accidentally fabricated through like just convoluted oral tradition. This is straight from uh, the, the first century. I would uh, honestly argue that probably ninety-eight A.D. is a pretty late date for the Epistle of Clement. I would say that since he refers to this as with as that, that Peter and Paul are within their own generation, I don't think there's any reason for him to kind of like make that up or just you know give that or just kind of stretch the truth a little bit um, out of his own maybe desirability bias. I think that that makes perfect sense that these that this that these events would happen within his own generation. So if that's the case, I think it's possible that, that this could be that this letter could be from maybe the the, the, the 60s um the the sixties a d as opposed to the nineties a d uh and what I wanted to mention here is that we have paul being martyred where in the west the extreme women of the west in fact, quoted directly from the text so I think this kind of challenges long standing tradition that paul that that paul was martyred in Rome, whereas in this case paul was martyred in Spain, or or maybe Portugal. Of course, we're talking in terms of present-day countries, but we can be, I guess, sort of safe and say he was martyred in the Iberian Peninsula. So it really does kind of challenge long-standing tradition. It's very interesting. when Once you start to dig into the text, you can see how exactly the earliest Christians viewed uh, their history and their theology. Speaking of their theology, uh, in a previous episode, uh, our season finale, I talked about how Trinitarianism was an idea that appeared to have developed across this uh, over the second, third, and thir- second, third, fourth, second, third, and fourth centuries. And that's actually not entirely true. Uh, if you read uh, if you read Philippians chapter two verses six through eleven, Jesus is equal to Yahweh. Now, what's so what's so powerful about this? What's so compelling about this? Well, Philippians chapter two verses six through eleven were in fact pre-Pauline, meaning that they were written before the conversion of Paul. Um, many Muslim apologists will say, "Well, you know, Paul simply just jumped in there and started claiming that Jesus was God and just corrupting Christianity beyond belief." That's not actually true. If you look at the disputes between Peter and Paul, for example. Uh, you'd expect to find that the disputes would be, well, is Jesus God or not, right? You'd expect that to be something that Paul recorded in his epistles or something that's sort of an ongoing theme, uh, at least in terms of subtext or at least in terms of vestiges of that conflict kind of scattered throughout maybe um, uh, some of the New Testament letters, whether or not you think they're written by Peter or whether or not you think they're written by, you know, Paul or 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 Jude or James or or so forth, but really the argument between Peter and Paul in the New Testament is, of course, that idea of like how how much how how Jewish should Christianity be? How much of the Jewish customs should be pre- should be preserved? So let me read uh, Philippians chapter two verses six through eleven because it is a very fascinating passage that again dates back to the earliest Christians. This is pre-Pauline. This is stuff that. Peter, James, and John, whom Paul calls the pillars of the church, would have recited and absolutely agreed with. Uh, Here it is. I'm actually going to start with verse 5. Quote, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And so this right here is the direct quotation. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider him that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father end quote so what's so interesting about this is we have this we have Jesus being equal to God i'm going to go switch up the translation to the yeah so if we read it from the nasb which is which is considered to be the most accurate word for word translation not simply just meaning of the words but word for word we see in in verse 6 it says quote who, who was who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So that's just verse six right there, and that in that sixth verse already, and this is again part of the pre-pont. This is again a pre-pontine creed. We have Jesus existed in the form of God and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So that's just straight from the most barebone, raw. Translation from Koine Greek to, Amer- to modern American English that we have, and it tells that Jesus. It tells us that the earliest Christians thought of Jesus as existing as pre-existing in the form of God before the creation of the Earth, and that Jesus uh, was equal with the Father. So, something very interesting. Now, let's continue with this kind of series in this uh, podcast episode on on um, divinity and the trinity you can also see in matthew chapter 18 verses 20 written this gospel written circa 80 to 85 a.d slash II, you have quote for where two or three gather in my name there i am with them end quote what's important about this what is inter- what is interesting about what what is interesting about this is actually what we have is we have this saying from jesus that is at least attributed to him. That says, "For where two or three gather in my name, there I am. There am I with them." This is something that that appears to kind of almost scream a high Christology, because it seems to me something to be very odd that simply a mere teacher says to one says to his or her they their followers. Now let's see the Gospel of Thomas. This is the thirtieth line of the Gospel of Thomas, a text written. In the second century but arguably might actually have uh, sort of historical kernels within it that go back to the historical Jesus quote Jesus said where there are three where there are three deities where there are three deities they are divine where there are two or more where, where there are two or one I am with that one So clearly we have this sort of overlap between the Gospel of Thomas and Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. I am no Life of Jesus scholar, but I do find it interesting that this is one of the sayings attributed to Jesus that is found in both the canonical Gospels and in the Gospel of Thomas. Let's talk about early Trinitarianism specifically since we sort of talked about the an argument for the early belief in the deity of Jesus, uh, quite overtly in Philippians chapter two verses six through eleven, and then more hypothetically in Matthew chapter eighteen verses twenty and line thirty of the Gospel of Thomas. Now let's turn our attention to this idea of early Trinitarianism. Um, this is an argument from uh, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, uh, who is a uh, who has a Ph.D. In, uh, in in essentially Old Testament studies. Uh, and he's arguing that that this idea of ambiguity in uh, amongst the three members of the Godhead kind of de- kind of denotes Trinitarianism, implies Trinitarianism in the Old Testament, or it's whichever term you prefer. We see quite clearly um, once you. I mean, like, it's not it's not clear, but like once you, once you kind of have that lens put on, you can you can quite. You can quite clearly see it, but you see this idea that there are two powers in heaven. There are two Yahweh figures, and sometimes it'll be very difficult to see when Yahweh is speaking, like in the book of of Genesis with the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord would be the second power of heaven, who is the visible form of Yahweh, whereas you have the invisible form of Yahweh who sits on a throne in heaven, and then you have the invisible spiritual form of Yahweh who is the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. And that forms a, a a sort of view of the Godhead that that many ancient Jews and Hebrews would have agreed to. But in the second century, the rabbis ruled out what was called what that that being called two powers theology, which is what I described as a heresy. But it lived on in Christianity, and was obviously does not exist in Islam because of the concept of tawheed. But let's 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 see this. Philippians, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 16 verses 6 through 7 and Philippians chapter uh, 1 verse 19 uh, and Acts uh, chapter, so Acts written between 80 and 85 AD and Philippians written between 52 and 62 AD um, have this kind of idea, have ambiguity of exactly like from whom the Holy Spirit is sent. So, if we read this, let's just read Philippians chapter 19. I'm reading this in the again in the uh, NASB translation. We have the following quote: "For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ." So, what's 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 interesting about this? So if you go about the if you go about the Genesis, it's what it's the Spirit of God, but now it's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ God? Well, it's His Spirit, but it's God's Spirit. So, it, 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 what happens is the waters get very muddy, and that's very uh, indicative or very, or very uh, it, it, it's, it's it, it calls us back to again those passages in the Old Testament in which it's ambiguous as to as to who has what identity. Is is this is the angel of is the Yahweh is the Yahweh figure we generally think of as God is is is, is that God or is the um or is the uh, the, the the angel um, of heaven or sorry the angel of the Lord is is that God? So then we can compare this to the, to the aforementioned text, uh, Philippians I'm sorry Acts chapter sixteen verses six through um verses six through seven. Here it says, this is Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia in Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, end quote. Isn't that interesting? The spirit of Jesus. So what we have is we have this this kind of sort of <laughs> confusion, this this sort of uh, divine confusion. Whose whose spirit is it? Is this the spirit of God? Yeah. Is this the spirit of Jesus? Yeah. So again, it really calls back to the to that Old Testament or Tanakh two powers theology. We can also see interesting ambiguity in Philippians chapter eight, verse nine, and First Peter chapter one. Verse 11, Romans, of course, being written between 55, 56, and 57 AD, and First Peter, written anywhere between 60 to 80 AD. So let's read these passages. Here in Romans 8, 9, we have the following. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So so, <laughs> what's going on here? We have the spirit of God, and then we have the spirit of Christ. Again, that's that same concept I referred to in Acts sixteen and Philippians one. Now let's see what 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 it says in First Peter chapter one verse eleven. It says as follows: First Peter chapter one verse eleven says as follows: quote, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Again, the spirit of Christ. Now, for good measure, let's look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 6. What is so interesting about Galatians? What is so interesting about Galatians that I think can really help us drive this point home? Well, the scholarly dating, the scholarly consensus is that Galatians was written around 48 AD. Okay, so if Jesus died and rose, or even if you're a total, even if you're you know skeptical or religious, if Jesus was on Earth the last time in human history in bodily form until the the eschaton, right? In in Christian thinking, and that and that 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 last time was 33 C.E. We have only 15 years later in circa 48. CE or forty eight AD, we have Galatians chapter four, verse six, which says, quote, Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls us out Abba Father. Okay? So again that concept of the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, or the Spirit of God. All right, lastly, let's talk, let's go back to to Papias. Let's talk about Mark and authorship. This is a very interesting idea because in in, in Christianity, for for quite a while, uh, people believed that the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels were originally written in Hebrew. Well, so let's read this. This is a quotation of, of, of Papias of Hierapolis attributed to him by Eusebius of Caesarea, who, was, who lived from 260 to 341 when he was writing his history of the church. But what is interesting is that um, again, it's a quotation of Hierapolis, or am of Papius of Hierapolis, who lived from sixty to one thirty, uh, who actually Irenaeus of Lyon, who died circa two hundred A.D., affirmed was a disciple of Polycarp, who died in one hundred fifty-five, who was actually contemporaneous to the early life of Irenaeus. Um, so, assuming that this quotation is not, you know, fabricated or is not sort of accidentally attributed to uh, uh, Papius, it is a very uh, interesting insight into how Papias and maybe some of his contemporaries would have thought the, the Gospel of Mark came about. The text says, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he relayed the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing, he took special care, not to omit anything he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. End quote. So clearly there is some ideas on Mark and authorship that Papias of Hierapolis, at least allegedly, put forth. So I hope you found this episode interesting. Uh, make sure to... Uh, follow our podcast on Spotify. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to see any uh, content there. And uh, that being said, this has been the Godcast. I'm Xavier and stay tuned.